everyone, and welcome to episode 516 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast, presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Welcome. Happy Monday. Um, today's episode is an interview I did with uh, Courtney Summers about her new book, The Project. I have to tell you, I loved this book. I loved her book, Sadie. I read it last year. Um, some of you may remember that when we did our non-traditional format episode back in April of 2020, for the uh, Professional Book Nerds Reading Challenge last year, a colleague of ours mentioned Sadie, and I immediately read it and loved it. So I was very, very excited to get an opportunity to interview Courtney about the project and read an advanced copy of it. Um, it is a book about two sisters, uh, B and Lo. B has um, is essentially gone off and joined a cult, and her sister Lo works for an investigative um, journalist magazine and, and is trying to find B and get her out of this cult. Um, and B doesn't really want to be found. Just as a warning for anyone who may need to have that information, we talk a lot about Jonestown and other cults in this episode. So I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this. Courtney was delightful and hilarious, and I'm so glad I got to talk to her. Um, the project is out in February, early February. I hope you all read it. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. Our website is ProfessionalBookNerds.com, and you can always email us at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. And with that, I'm going to stop talking and let you all listen to this interview I did with Courtney Summers on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Jill, and my guest today is New York Times bestselling author Courtney Summers. Her work has been released to critical acclaim and multiple star, uh, starred reviews. She's also received numerous awards and honors, including the Edgar Award, the John Spray Mystery Award, and the White Pine Award. Her latest book, The Project, is out February 2nd. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I know I was telling you before uh, we started recording that I first heard about your book, Sadie, at the beginning of the pandemic when one of my coworkers mentioned it <laughs> on the podcast. So this is very exciting. Um, but can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to the project? The project is a book about an aspiring young journalist named Lo, who is determined to save her sister from a cult. And she gets the opportunity to write an expose on the Unity Project, and it puts her in the direct path of its very charismatic leader. And that doesn't go too well for her. <laughs> terribly, a, in fact. <laughs> it's actually a very succinct way of putting it. I like it. <laughs> um, I've been working on that. <laughs> One thing I really liked about this book is that, you know, we see uh, the the Unity Project, this this cult, kind of through different lenses. We see it through Lowe's lens. We see it through her sisters. Um, and as the story unfolds and we learn a bit more about all the people involved, our own, as a reader, like our own kind of perspective shifts slightly. Um, so how did you kind of balance all of that, uh, especially in terms of kind of offering breadcrumbs as the story starts to unfold? I did a lot of uh, research for writing this and most of it was uh, based on Jonestown and Jim Jones and People's Temple. And the really interesting thing about Jonestown and People's Temple is that the church started out as something that was 
uh, by and large positive. It was like doing such amazing work in the civil rights movement and helping with poverty and their local communities and getting people fed and sheltered. Like if you from the outside and from the inside, like People's Temple was a place to be where if you want where you wanted to initiate positive change in the world, you could do that. Like you were actually mm -hmm. making something good happen. And the more you read about people's temple the more the survivors really come into the fore and you realize that everyone had a different reason for joining but they were all in service of this this really fantastic uh end goal which was to like improve the world they just got completely um lost to one madman's vision but like it started out so good and everyone had the best of intentions and the more you read survivor stories and survivor accounts and you realize just how varied uh, the perspectives are and people's reasons are their own, even if the 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 culmination of the cult seems to be acting as one. It's just very varied, <laughs> as, as weird as that sounds. So when I was writing the project, I was like, okay, everyone has to have their own reason for joining this with an overarching um, motivation to bring meaning into their lives and into the world. But just having these unique perspectives and everyone just having a very fixed purpose was really important to me. So I was just constantly immersed in survivor stories from Jonestown and People's Temple because I feel like it's really, it's probably one of the most tragic and heartbreaking um, cult stories out there. And I think it's one of the ones that if people are willing to dig deep into, they could really see themselves in if they were willing. I agree. I um, read uh, Jeff Gunn's book, The Road to Jonestown, a couple of that years was ago. So good. It was so good. It's a very big book, but um, very in-depth. And I think, you know, Jonestown and the People's Temple is one of these things that has sort of reached, you know, kind of mythical status in our culture. And yeah, I, I didn't know up until reading that book that there were even survivors at all. Um which it, was so many shocking. people died like a thousand right. people were like lost to that it was like the largest uh loss of american life uh prior to uh september 11th mm -hmm. it, it was and i think it, there were not many survivors like no. they yeah. get together every year i think to commemorate the anniversary and like the uh, immediate survivors like their families obviously are now joining in those um memorials but it i feel like it was very few that walked away from that yeah yeah there wasn't a lot but i think you know you have this idea of what happened that day or what caused it and you're right there's this very you know that the events of jonestown didn't happen in a vacuum there were events that no. led up to it but yeah in the beginning like you thought like jim jones believed he was doing good he was doing good um and then you have your character like Lev Warren, which record is a fantastic cult leader name, by the way. Um, <laughs> but he's this very you. enigmatic. You're welcome. He's this very I enigmatic agonized character. over that, so I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I'm like that's a that is Lev Warren. That is a really really good cult leader name. I totally buy that. <laughs> yes, achievement unlocked. <laughs> but yeah, he's this very enigmatic character, and you can see how people would be drawn to that and want to join his cause the same way they would have with Jim Jones. The interesting thing about uh, cult leaders is something that I kept repeatedly coming across in, in my research was first they're going to, um, they can be all things to all people. So whatever you specifically need, they will be able to answer. And that's why people I think don't believe that they'd ever willingly like 
feel mm-hmm. entranced by a cult leader because the way they reach out to people is so highly specified. So if you can't relate to someone's personal reasons for joining a cult, you're like, oh, I'm safe from it. But it's like their reasons aren't going to be yours and, and you won't know yours until you meet these people, like these very charismatic people. It's I don't understand the immunity we all feel we'd have to cult leaders. They're, they're good at what they do. <laughs> they, they are good at what they do. I don't, I think, you know, I think you do look at something. I think because when we think of cults, we think of like, that end result of something like Jonestown and not understanding, you know, it's sort of like that idea of, uh, if you're, you know, like a lobster in water and the water starts to get warm and you don't, you don't, (laughs) you don't get out because you get, yeah. Like suddenly your dinner. Um, (laughs) it's, I I feel like it's probably some of that. Cause if you look at, if your only understanding of Jonestown is the, the tragedy and you're like well I never would have put myself in a position not understanding it's kind of like a long con with these you know you get sucked into it and then you go in for your reasons and the longer you're in there your own you know views maybe start to change and you're just kind of swept along with it I think there's a lot of like societal complicity that we reject when we talk about cults too like we don't want to think something about the way we are with others or the or the way the world works is broken like if if we ask ourselves why are people joining cults and and we're part of the answer why like the immediate thing you want to do is reject it like it's not my fault i'm not contributing to any kind of overarching environment that isn't going to encourage people to run away from me because there's you know like it's a it's a tough world out there where mm-hmm. why wouldn't you want to find a place that is promising you a little peace and acceptance yeah, no, uh, agreed. And that, you know, maybe that's part of it too, is that there's this assumption of the type of people that end up in cults and thinking, I'm not like that, even though we all could susceptibly be if the right person came along and timing had, is everything. <laughs> yeah, timing is everything. Timing is everything. Um, you mentioned, you know, when you were talking about the project that it's um, about you know, low and she's trying to find her sister and your last book, Sadie also dealt with, um, a missing sister and, and another sister trying to find her. Um, my only sibling is a sister. I totally understand like, <laughs> you know, being in that position of what would happen if, if my sister went missing, um, all of your books kind of deal with this idea of girls and crimes perpetuated with girls. I'm just curious if there was a reason or if it's just a coincidence that your last two books dealt with sisters in this way. I I think it's sort of what the story demanded, but also I'm a little sister. So, and I, there's just something very interesting to mind there. Like what is, what is family and found families and the relationships we forge? And when you're trying to like live your own life and have your own identity who are you obligated to and and what does that mean and and there's there's so much to mind like supernatural which i i was a huge fan of <laughs> you know it's that's 300 plus episodes about brothers and it never got old to me mm-hmm. so i guess there's something there i just like the whole sibling dynamic it it feels very i mean it's i mean it depends obviously on the relationship you have with your siblings but it it would be hard for me to imagine a world without mine so I'm just constantly tor- tormenting myself with all these possibilities and fiction, I guess. I'm working through something, <laughs> apparently. 
Apparently. <laughs> no, I think, you know, that, that concept is found of found family is interesting because it, it plays into the project because, you know, Lo has a hard time understanding naturally like where her sister B went and having to maybe, you know, be told that she doesn't want to see you. She has this other right. family that she's not related to that she wants to see instead. That's really hard. And that would be hard for anybody. I think if you have a close relationship with your sibling to be told like, no, they'd rather have this found family and not True. you. <laughs> right. Like there's a, a real, a deep sense of betrayal there. I mean, um, especially if you're what feels like you're upholding your end of the bargain as a sister. And I, I think Lo really certainly felt that she did. She felt she was owed something from B and I don't think she was wrong in what she felt. Um, I, the idea that you could be at the lowest moment of your life as low was after like this car accident and to not have the person you, the last person you have left there for you. I mean, just the depths of that utter betrayal, I would be bitter for the rest of my life. Like, honestly, I would, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a black and white thinker than low because I was <laughs> constantly trying to like get back to be, whereas I'd be like, Oh really? Okay. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's actually a good point when you put it like that. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, like these two sisters have had this, you know, like this horrible thing happen low and then this car crash. And then, yeah, her older sister's like, B's like, nah, I'm peacing out. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm going to go find you. I don't know if I would actually be able to do that, to be perfectly frank. I, yeah. Uh, I'd just like that's a good point. Just stew in the rejection and then live <laughs> spitefully for the rest of the <laughs> But, you know, fiction is writing is the act of empathizing and thinking about experiences outside your own. My characters well, have bigger hearts than I do. <laughs> I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's no. good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Lo, um, she's she's very tenacious, often to her own detriment when it comes to finding out information about B, which I, I, I liked seeing that, that she's just like, I'm not going to take no for an answer. And I don't care if people who like pay me say, no, I'm going to do this thing. <laughs> I'm such, I'm like a, I'm a very big rule follower. Are you? I, I'm just like, it's very hard for me to like, I mean, I will if I have to, but to, to the extent Lo does to get the information she wants, it just, it makes, it makes my very rule following. <laughs> I just uh, shudder. <laughs> no, I, I, I can be a rule follower if I have to be. But... Are you, you're a rebel. <laughs> I'm a bit of a rebel. I'm a bit of a rebel. Yeah. So um... have you read um, Gretchen Rubin's The Four Tendencies? Yes. And I definitely was a rebel when I took oh, the yeah. I'm an upholder. Yeah. So there, that's the difference between us. It's like, oh, you told me no. I will uphold that. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, can I circumnavigate this to get to what I want? While still following, you know, like I'm like all about the spirit of the law, uh, but not the letter. <laughs> not always the letter of the law. That's a good way to be, though. Question authority. Hey, nerds. I want to take a quick break from Jill's interview to talk about today's sponsor, which is a new sponsor. It's Tommy John Underwear. Listen, you've heard, if you've ever listened to podcasts, you've probably heard some underwear or loungewear company uh promoting their stuff but here's the thing tommy john is like it's the most comfortable underwear i've ever owned i've ever owned but it's not just under underwear they have 
so much loungewear that I am absolutely obsessed with. I'm wearing a pair of the sweatpants right now as I record this. It's 2021. We've spent almost the last year in a pandemic working from home. And you know what's awesome to work from home in? Loungewear that's extremely comfortable. It's something just to know that like, all right, I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to put something on and I'm going to enjoy myself all day long. It's breathable. It's lightweight. Their clothes and their underwear are moisture wicking. Uh, They are stretchy. They're just ludicrously comfortable loungewear. And when I look at my closet, I have a bunch of loungewear because again, I've been spending the past year working from home more or less. And yet I find myself over the past week continuously grabbing the things that I've got from Tommy John because they're just so ludicrously comfortable. Uh, For their underwear, they have a no-risk Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. You can try Tommy John today. If you don't love them, uh, they're absolutely free for you. So there's no risk, no worries at all. Again, this stuff is just, there's nothing like putting on loungewear and underwear and base layers and everything. It just, you can just enjoy your day and be extremely comfortable. So if you go to tommyjohn.com slash PBN, you can save 15% on your first order right now. Save 15% right now at tommyjohn.com slash PBN. That's T-O-M-M-Y-J-O-H-N.com slash PBN. Tommyjohn.com slash PBN to save 15% on your first order. See site for details. I'm going to shift gears quite a little bit because when I was actually doing research for this, I read in an interview that you did a couple of years ago that you love Robert um, uh, Cormier books. Yes. You specifically mentioned the chocolate war, but my personal favorite is I am the cheese. Um, That was good. That was like a, that was my introduction to him. Actually, that's what got me from I am the cheese to the chocolate war because uh, um, my sister had a friend down. who was just like raving about this book with this ending you would never predict. (laughs) And I was like, what's that? And she's like, I am the cheese. And I was like, what is that title? <laughs> and little did I know. Right? Yeah. I read it, I think, in fifth or sixth grade. It was a, it was a school book. Um, but in that interview, you mentioned that one of the reasons you like his books is that they're intense, they're really good, but they aren't always happy, and that you yeah. like books that don't compromise. And I'm wondering if you can kind of expand a bit on about why you like those books and then, you know your books are also don't compromise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so I feel like there's, you know, it's what I really want to do every time I sit down to write a book is tell the most honest story I can. And I don't, I don't want to compromise the truth of the story. Um, I take responsibility for what I write. I, I never want to do harm with what I write, but I want to write a book that is true to the characters and their experiences that feels real and that doesn't feel like it's, um, it has to be anything less than what it needs to be. Like, I don't want to ever approach writing that's at the expense of itself for, for the hope of a better critical reception, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's so important to write Honestly, and I'm not like my books are about dark, 
brutal grim realities that young women are faced with, for example. And my priority is going to be engaging with that subject matter as honestly as possible. So I'm going to incorporate very raw and vulnerable points of views. And in doing so, I'm hoping to like broaden a reader's perspective or their sense of empathy. And I have to give myself the permission to interact with the ideas in a way that's true to the story and give my characters the freedom to interact with those ideas on the way in a way that's true to them so that the reader can you know, engage with those ideas in a way that's true to them and feels very authentic and real. And, and I can't start making concessions for what I think people want to read or what they think should happen in a story. And I feel like like the chocolate war is a really good example that you go through this like horrible chocolate mm. bar sale. And at the <laughs> end, everyone basically like is so defeated, like they just give up. And I'm like, that's so good. <laughs> like, it was like <laughs> I feel so alive now because it was like, like, how do you, you can't walk away from that. Anything less than that ending would have felt like a cheat. And I love that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That is, you know, that is one of those books where it's, it's not feel good. Like it's not, you know, like that sports movie where the underdog right ends <laughs> up winning that. in like the bottom of the ninth inning with one batter up like that doesn't happen in real life usually never <laughs> and, <laughs> I was like, and, I was like and, this is real this is true this is terrible I love it like it, it was so it was so deflating and I just remember like you know when you finish a book and you're just clutching it like yes yes <laughs> that yes it was a big moment for me as a reader <laughs> I could see that I could see that um yeah, so when you know, in terms of writing the project and and your characters, um, you know how you, you mentioned Jonestown, but sort of how did this idea come about? Did you have Low first? Did you have B first? Did they kind of come together? You know, to you. I was. It was like just before Sadie was coming out. I was um, in New Orleans for. ALA and I was and I, I got to I really get to talk to my editor in person about my book so that, that was really exciting I remember sitting across from her at a table and I'm like I, th I think I want to write a cult book please talk me out of it <laughs> because it just seemed like too big and also there's the whole I, I've I've mentioned this before online but when you write a cult book there's only one way it's going to end right right like, nobody enters a cult book thinking it's going to end well for anybody. So it just felt like there was obstacle upon obstacle. And uh, we just went back and forth. Like, is there a way to subvert this narrative? Is there like, what can we do? And eventually uh, the whole newspaper thing, I think came first and then, and then low. And then I wrote a really terrible first draft and there was no B perspective in the first draft. It was just, I feel like this came together through so many pieces. It's hard to tell what came first, but it initially started by me asking my editor, like, please talk me out of this. <laughs> but she didn't. <laughs> oh, that was... And now I get to be editor. on your podcast, so it all worked out. <laughs> it all worked out. It all worked out. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the newspaper aspect is interesting because media often plays a big part in your books. You know, Sadie has this right. podcast... And there was an actual accompanying podcast. You have your hashtag to the girls, which is about, and you know, empowering positivity and encouragement. Right. A lot of that because of the books that you write. So this is a two-part question. Can you talk a bit more about why it's important for you to bring your books sort of out of the book space and into the real world? And 
Is there anything like that that's going to happen with the project? Oh man, um, <laughs> I I I feel like I'm getting overcredited because when I was sitting down to write it, I was like, this would be cool if it was a podcast. Why can't a book be a podcast? Like there's, it was just sort of the excitement of of the form that really got me first, and then um, Macmillan was like, we're gonna we're gonna take this all the way, and I was like, I'm gonna let you. That's very cool. <laughs> Thank you. Um, with the project, uh, we have some neat, uh, we have like an influencer pack that is all of Lowe's research. We've been able to incorporate these these components into the marketing. And I feel like the audiobook is going to have a little bit of a moment that I, I don't know if I can talk about yet. I feel like, yeah, I feel like I'm being overcredited for my intentionality when I'm just like, this would be cool, like you know, <laughs> which is so much of writing. This would be cool. Can I do it? And I did it. <laughs> No, I mean, that's, that's one of, I mean, obviously I host a podcast. I listen to true crime podcasts. So I think that, you know, the fact that Sadie exists in a format that is out, like transcends the actual book is really cool, but it wouldn't exist without you. So you should take some credit for it. I mean, (laughs) let's be honest here. My favorite thing is like when I get reviews that are like the audiobook and the podcast are great, but this wouldn't work written down. <laughs> but it started that way. <laughs> oh, it's well, an actual book. <laughs> it is. And that's how I read it. I did not, you know, yeah. like I, I did the audiobook and the, the podcast stuff after actually reading the book. So it does work in that format. So thank you. I'm You're welcome. You'll be the final word on that. <laughs> there you it go. It works. <laughs> it works. You can put that like as a blurb. It works. Um, you know, going back to the cult thing, because I think it's interesting that you said that, you know, people go into a cult book and things don't end well, <laughs> which, I mean, you know, yeah. is, that's true. <laughs> There's a, it's, um, it's, you got to find your suspense elsewhere. Like not me, I mean, not outside of my book, but I mean, within the the creation of the story it's like how do how do we keep the tension up and and for me like i really think of like sadie and the project as like emotional thrillers mm-hmm. like i feel especially with the project i think when if you go in expecting something sensational like a spectacle um and people often do with cult novels like you're going to be disappointed but if you come in with like the understanding that these stakes are very real uh very human whether or not you know how the story might end um, if you like engage with it from an, a, a place of empathy and openness, like you're going to get tense, <laughs> you know, it's going right. to bug you a little, which is really all I want. Like if I can't surprise you at the end with a cult book, I can at least upset you very much in a variety of other ways. <laughs> uh, spoken like a true thriller writer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, you know, I think the thing with what I like about the project and sort of that that empathy and that humanization of it is that these people in the both in the unity project and then in cults in general like they have families who are worried about them and trying to help them and i like that you know we see it from lowe's perspective while also seeing it you know from bees and inside but right you you feel that that tension and that I, I guess, you know, you, you sort of look at it, you're like, I would never end up in a cult. Would any of my right. family? I don't know. Probably not. Right. I don't know. But when you have it through Lowe's point of view, you're like, okay, I could see how this actually could happen. And like, where am I? Like, what would I be willing to do to get a family member out? But it's just making the stakes as personal as possible. And I think that is 
like again, I think that some readers will enter with an expectation of a very sensational story, which I, I really don't think the project is. Yeah. I, but I, I don't think I could have written that story in good conscience. You know, like I don't, I don't want to make a spectacle out of something yeah. that's hurt real people. Like I read so much about Jonestown. I, I, they call it the Jonestown vortex. Once you start reading about it, like when you start researching it, like you, you can't stop. So I'm still reading about Jonestown. Yep. It's, it's so, I don't know. It's, it's just, I find, I find it so devastating that after all absorbing all of that and like listening to the sermon and the death tape and, and hearing these survivors have to come on and kind of justify or like ask people to see their humanity. That's what I find the most devastating thing about it is seeing survivor accounts and they're just begging um, the world to see the humanity in their experience and they're not getting that back from the world that's I I feel like if I had written anything that was like you know come come watch the spectacle I would be very I would feel like I failed that's fair yeah no yeah. these these are real people and it's 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 just it's so easy to like other other yourself from yes experiences that you, you would that make you uncomfortable and scared and I, it's just compassion is good everyone empathy is good <laughs> <laughs> yes empathy is very good and you're right it probably is just like it's it's hard I think for anybody if if something makes you uncomfortable it's easier to other that yeah um, you want away from it you just you're like, like you know we don't have to engage with the thing that gives me the creepy crawlies we can just right. say that would never be me right yeah right which is probably not true because yeah. as you said, yeah, it, I, it's you, it's easy to want to think that, but I mean, the just the right person. Belong, like to have community, yeah. like we have fandoms, like what, what is, yeah. what is the line yeah. between anything can go bad at any time? You, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a life lesson for everyone listening. Everything can go bad at any time. At any time. Yes. You have so much to is... look forward to. Thank you. And good night. <laughs> Nope. That is, that is very accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, you're right though about like, once you fall down the Jonestown rabbit hole, it's hard to get out. Um, because you know, like with a lot of these cult situations, there's this idea, a misperception of what happened. And then you start to read about them and learn about them and you realize it's not. And so anytime, you know, you hear that phrase, like, drink the Kool-Aid. I always want to be like, it, it yeah, was flavored. Yes, it was flavored. And it was, yeah, nobody <laughs> thinks of it as like, uh, oh, man, it's just so, when I think about, like, they were injecting people. Yeah, they yeah. Were, they had armed guards. It's, it's. I don't know. Just it wasn't like it. a voluntary thing. Like, you didn't, yeah. Yeah, so you hear you, the joke, and it's like, you're that person not laughing. It's like, because it's not funny. It's not like, funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's- and also your fact is wrong but yeah i mean yeah that too <laughs> that too like it's it's not cool but yeah the fact that it has sort of become this like catch-all term i think it was on snl not too long after the actual events uh, i can't imagine like just flipping around the dial and and being you know jonestown adjacent or a survivor and seeing people make a mockery of this like just yeah yeah and it, we're so desensitized by the by the imagery, like if you look up Jonestown, you're often yep. going to find the the bodies in the sun. It's like those are those are people. That's right. I yeah. I, yeah. I mean, what do you say? Like if someone is like, I don't know. It, but I, I at the same time, 
I don't know. We get so desensitized so easily now. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like the only antidote against that is for me to keep writing and be like, no, you should be upset, actually. Well, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. You know, you you read about these real life um, events like Jonestown and then you go and write your own. So what does that say? (laughs) 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 I mean, yeah, like how did so I guess, you know, like, how do you come up with the creation of a cult, like a fake cult, like the Unity Project? It, oh, it was so hard. It was, at, at first it was like, I, I, in my determination to make everyone, I was like, everyone has to want to join this cult. Like that was my goal from the outside. So it was like, it has to be a cult that appeals to everyone. So therefore I'm going, it's not going to have religion in it. That's how the book started. And that was like, mm-hmm. a, so many cults have like a base in religion I brought religion back to the project and it's like again I I referred to Jonestown where so many people if they Jones Jim Jones started as a church and he got people involved um, by pretending he was like the incarnation of God and he could bring people back to life and he could cure them of their cancers like they had this whole spiel where they were pretending to remove cancers at like um their mm-hmm. their masses and things and sermons and it was it was all fake of course but like the, he brought in believers like people of great faith yep. and then when he wanted to expand his uh his following he started to reject the idea of the church and and bring in the whole uh like communism thing and socialism he i think he said he was like the reincarnation of lenin too or something like that he said a lot of things, but uh, so when it shifted away from religion, the people that had, he constantly had to like play these two roles. He had to appeal to his very religious followers. And he also had to appeal to the ones that didn't really believe in God, but believed in the messaging and the work of the temple. So he was constantly balancing between those two. So I realized I could like have a, a religious undertone in the project because the work was what was going to matter to people, not necessarily the message of God. And for some people it would be the message of God less than the work. So, and then once I had a a framework there, I just had to build it out into this whole, he's redeeming humanity from this, this, uh, from our sins. And I said it in 2016, because it felt like that was like a prime time for vulnerable people to want to feel less helpless, Mm -hmm. given the election and everything. So it was, it was a very long process where it's like, I'm trying to appeal to everyone, but then you realize the broader you are, the less, the murkier things get. So I had to get, I, I just had to really set down a foundation for them. It was, it was such a long, <laughs> grueling process. I, I, I'm thinking of it now. I'm just like remembering the pain of, of getting all the ducks in a row with that. But yeah. it, I needed that too, because if, if Lev didn't have it, what was he going to preach? Yeah. Was, yeah. This book put me through it. <laughs> Well, for what it's worth, it's an excellent book. And so oh, hopefully thank that you. works out for you. <laughs> like, I think it, I mean, like Fingers the crossed. final, like the, <laughs> I meant more like the final project. I think I personally, as a reader, I, I hope it was worth the effort you put into it is what I was trying to say. <laughs> I, I will say that I love this book enough that I dedicated it to myself. <laughs> so, there, you know what? Yeah. That, I mean, I could see how, you know, you write about a lot of really difficult topics in particular with, you know, things that girls go through. Um, and I could see how adding this on would be sort of like a slightly different. Um... It was an undertaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
It was, but I, um, I also think it's like just as a byproduct of working in this industry so long, like, uh, you just, your ambition changes, your, your focus maybe gets, um, bigger, like, uh, my books really started out personal, very personal stories about girls and, and they still are, they, I have, they haven't sacrificed that interiority, but I want to explore the world around them more than I might've started out doing, but I was 23 when I started publishing, so. It's a different time and a different Courtney. <laughs> yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing what future Courtney comes up with. Well, uh, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm glad that makes <laughs> one of us. <laughs> I will I will carry that burden for you. Uh, <laughs> um, I feel like I could talk about Jonestown with you for like the next five hours, but <laughs> I don't know if our listeners would appreciate that. But I wanted to say, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a um, delightful conversation despite the heavy topic. Um, we made it work, didn't we? We, we did. We did. And um, I I really do hope our, our listeners pick up the project because it's so good and all of your other books as well. I hope everyone's content. when they fin- Will they finish this with a smile on their face or will they just be really, trep- you know, scared to pick up the book? How do we do a final sell on this? Oh, I don't, I mean, no, you know what? I, I You know, I think there's a, there's a lot of people out there who, is this book for everyone? Probably not, but no book is for everybody. And I think there's definitely a subset of people like myself who (laughs) we like those dark books. I like books that I don't, I mean. Oh, I know. Are you cool like Jill or are you a coward? (laughs) Well, that might be gone a little too far, but yeah. No, I think I nailed it. Okay. That's it. (laughs) All right. Works for me then. Works for me. There you go. Courtney has that's, those are your options. Are you cool like me <laughs> or, and we'll pick up the project or are you a coward? So exactly. there I you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Courtney. Thank you. This was awesome. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.